Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. So the reason I think it's important to, to start that is often when we have these discussions, it becomes a case of if I find somebody uh, who disagrees with the opinion that I've come to on this particular topic, that automatically makes them the Antichrist. Or that automatically makes, you know, or, you know, we start reading through the book of Revelation, oh, you know, the, the, you know, oh, the, 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 the beast, you know, or the, or the dragon's written up out of the water, or the, or, you know, the heart of the Babylon, or all that sort of stuff. Uh, when I think when we get to the core of it, we realise the fact that um, these people are in fact uh, searchers just like we are. Uh, and just as we should have the ability to um, uh, admit that we can sometimes make mistakes, let's not look at the mistakes of others or at least the perceived mistakes of others and then judge them accordingly. Uh, so this is a really important thing when it comes to this particular topic because this is one of those things that's really, really polarising uh, within, within the church and one that um, uh, obviously creates quite a bit of um, uh, angst. Uh, who here amongst you has angst about this particular topic? Or if you don't hear the response that you want to hear, you're going to get upset. Go on, put your hand up. Don't, don't be afraid. Right, thank you very much, yes. Oh, no, no. talking about it was talking about it All right. So one of the things that's important is when it comes to, to Christianity, um, uh, at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of, of Constantinople in 325 and 381, the, the, the fathers of the church put together what it is that we are expected to believe as Christians. And to believe something outside of these things is defined as heresy. Okay? And so what do we what what are these statements of faith that we're meant to believe in? Does anyone know what they are? It's the the, the, the creed that we say during the liturgy. Okay? So what how does the, the creed begin? Truly we believe in one God, Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and visible. Okay? And then we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, da, 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 through whom all things were made. All right? So in other words, the core part of our belief is that every single subatomic particle in existence is here because God wanted it to be here. Every single packet of energy is here because God wanted it to be here. Every single 
uh, human being is a remarkable miracle created in the image and striving towards the likeness of God, who is an assembly of these particles, but is much more sacred simply than the sum of their parts. Because a human being isn't just what they're made of, it's who they are. And who they are is somebody who's in the image and in the likeness of God. Okay? So in other words, we have a very sacred view of God's creation, regardless of what perspective we want to take on, 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 on the issue of, of uh, uh, creationism and evolutionism. Uh, and uh, thank you for, for uh, uh, jogging my memory on this as well, because I was going to talk creation and evolution. So the idea being, um, uh, you know, creation is uh, an event. Creationism is an interpretation of the event based on, um, uh, uh, you know, particular ideological perspectives. So are we, uh, as Christians, creationists? Yes or no? What, what do we think? Yes. We've got... We've got Yes. yes, that's a, a very, very sage answer. Uh, the, the, uh, if the question is, do we believe that God is the creator of the universe of all things seen and unseen, then the answer is absolutely yes. There can be no other option other than the fact that God is the creator of all those things. Okay? Now, in terms of the way that we... Um, wrestle with the topic of them, well, as to the how, and that becomes a more interesting uh, conversation to have, and one where there is a little bit more wiggle room. Okay? And it's not a modern phenomenon either, by the way, this idea of how do we interpret the fact that God is the creator of the universe? How do we interpret, in particular, uh, the first uh, three chapters of Genesis? Uh, from the very beginning of Christianity, and even before Christianity, back in Judaism, there were different ways of reading that particular passage. Um, now, before we get into that particular into that aspect of things, let's take a little step back and ask ourselves. So, so uh, you know, very uh, uh, broadly speaking, uh, you know, Charles Darwin comes along in the middle of the nineteenth century and goes, "Oh, hang on a sec. You know, I've noticed that the same species of birds, when they're separated by a couple of hundred years, end up being looking different from each other." Oh, they must change it. So, just sort of thinking back to it, oh, really? Ultimately, human beings must also have come out from that from that particular um, uh, through that process as well. Therefore, Genesis is wrong. Okay. Now, uh, well, actually, he wasn't that bold. He never said specifically Genesis is wrong. He just went, kind of is what it is, guys. But I'm not gonna. I'm because you know his wife was actually quite a devout Christian, and, and uh, he in fact studied to be a minister and all sorts of things like that. Um, now, I'm interested in your opinions uh, when, uh, about the uh, issue of, of creation and, and, and evolution. Uh, you know, when that first came came out, there was then a huge uproar within the Christian world, understandably, um, about the idea of well. Evolution being a, uh, a mechanism by which life uh, is created on Earth. Um, now, for the people who were very upset about uh, the issue of, uh, of evolution as a mechanism, there's, there's one thing that they tended to have in common. Okay, that's a de denominational issue. 
Do we know roughly who the, who the big proponents of opposition to um, uh, evolution were from? Sorry? Uh, no, it's in people who opposed uh, evolution. Who just said, no, it had to be creation from six days. Yes, but a very particular type of Christians who were really at the forefront. Sorry? Uh, yes, uh, North American uh, people from the Protestant tradition is really where the hub of this opposition to the idea of, of Jonas Temple. Now, why were they opposed to this? And I think they're opposed to this, in fact, for a very honourable reason and a very uh, beautiful reason, which is that the Holy Scriptures are sacred and they are the Word of God. So therefore, if they occur in the Holy, something occurs in the Holy Scriptures, that must be taken seriously and literally. Now, why do you think that within a Protestant confessional uh, uh, position that they took such a strong stance on the idea of creation versus evolution? What, what, what do you think made them say, um, uh, no, 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 we have to, uh, we have to interpret the Holy Scriptures literally? Why do you think Protestants, in particular, this Protestantism is very faith-based. They don't have icons. They don't have this type of stuff. It's very like read the Word, and believe everything you read, yep. and it's more about your relationship with God. There's no rituals. There's no. Yep. Yeah, so, so very, you read the thing and you believe the thing. Beautiful. Thank you. So, so what, what's your name? Jared. Jared? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for that, Jared. So, so uh, I don't know if that will come out of the recording, but uh, Jared was saying that because uh, it's, it's, um, it's not a ritual-based uh, confession, so as a result of that, there is a real immediacy to what is read in the Holy Scriptures. And I think you're absolutely uh, onto something there. Another way of kind of putting it, and this is the way that, that I think about it, is that within Protestantism, um, a whole bunch of things that were part of the church for a very long time, you know, the, the sacramental life, the, the um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, authority within the church that had a particular structure, all of these things were kind of stripped away. And so the only thing that was left really was were the scriptures. And so if, you know, it's, it's, it's the theology of solar scripture, you know, only only the scriptures uh, as being the, the only thing that can be, can be trusted. And so when something like evolution comes along, uh, and they're thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe it wasn't uh, a, a six-day process, maybe it wasn't approximately 6,000 years ago, then that's a real challenge, a very direct challenge to the only source of authority within, within, within the Christian tradition. Now, uh, that, I was trying to give you an explanation for why, particularly within Protestantism, there was such a strong reaction against, um, uh, uh, against the idea of, of, uh, of evolutionary uh, theory. Uh, now, so in other words, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is how do we read the Bible? What, what does it mean to read the Bible? In fact, that's kind of the core question that we're asking ourselves tonight. Not so much is it creation and evolution, but rather how do we understand the scriptures within, in particular, an orthodox context? So, uh, first and foremost, the scriptures are the most significant and the most trustworthy testimony we have to what God wants for human beings. There's a reason that we call the scriptures the word of God. Okay? Because in the scriptures we come face to face with somebody who is not simply a word of God, but the word of God. 
We come face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. From the very first page to the very last page. From the beginning of creation in Genesis to the heavenly Jerusalem in the book of uh, the Apocalypse. Every single part of that, we are coming face to face with Christ. The Holy Scriptures are a written icon of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from an Orthodox perspective, there there is basically uh, uh, the highest place of reverence is placed on the Holy Scriptures. But we do have a slightly different way of understanding uh, the, the significance of the Scriptures. As I, as I mentioned, uh, 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 not obviously significant scriptures, the, how we then read the scriptures. As I mentioned very early on, uh, you know, even within Judaism, there were different ways of approaching the issue of scripture. If you were to read scripture within an uh, Essene context or within a Pharisaic context at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, that was actually, you would have heard a very different interpretation of scripture in both of those camps. And an even radically more different one in uh, somewhere like the Hellenised Jews in Alexandria. So uh, we know from uh, the writings of, of a figure called Philo of Alexandria that his reading of scripture utilised this method which became a foundational method for the way that Orthodox Christians or the early church read the Holy Scriptures, okay, which is the allegorical interpretation of scriptures. In other words, he said that Behind the surface meaning, there is a deeper meaning. And the church fathers, in fact, were able to then utilise that method in order to uncover a much deeper meaning to the scriptures themselves. Now, the first person to quote, codify this approach, and we find this approach, in fact, all the way through uh, Christian tradition, all the way back to our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus Christ talks about um, uh, Jonah, what does he say about Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Yep. So will the Son of Man be? Yes. So for our Lord Jesus Christ, the significance of Jonah wasn't the historical event of Jonah, but rather what Jonah signified as a prophecy towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that becomes a really interesting model given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ in terms of how to approach the issue of Scripture, which is that, did our Lord Jesus Christ deny the historical event? No, he didn't deny the historical event, but he said there's something deeper than that. And so, the approach that the church fathers took uh, very early on, and this was really codified by a bloke called Oregon, who is not a saint in the uh, tradition of the Orthodox Church, however, he is considered a, a, a most significant pioneering exegete when it comes to the Holy Scriptures. And he said, look, when you read the Holy Scriptures, you think of the Holy Scriptures like a human person. What's a human person made up out of? What are the three components that define it? What makes a human person? Body, soul, and spirit. And he said, this is in fact how we read the Holy Scriptures. That there is the body, which is the literal meaning of the text. There is the soul, which is the moral meaning of the text because it applies to the, to, to the level of the soul. In other words, having read about um, Jonah and the Ninevites, uh, how am I meant to live my life as a result of that? And then the final level is the allegorical level, which is the spiritual reading of the scriptures. And it's at this level that Oregon says everything, every single letter, every single dot, every single comma is 
absolute perfection. Now, Oregon says something, uh, in fact, very um, uh, even scandalous to us, in, uh, ironically, uh, 1,700 years later. Oregon understands, and in fact, the whole of the early church understood, that there are some things in the Holy Scriptures that didn't quite mesh together very well. So to give you an idea, uh, uh, in the second century, a bloke called Tatian, who was originally living in uh, Rome, but he was of Syrian origin, and he ended up compiling the text, because he said, man, this is embarrassing, we've got four Gospels. People are going to laugh at us, because you read them, they're all different from each other. You know, was it one angel or two angels at the, re- at the resurrection? Was it, um, uh, you know, did, did Mary Magdalene see Christ or didn't she see Christ? You know, did John go into the sepulchre? Uh, 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 did he reach the sepulchre first or did was Peter the only one, like we read it in, in Gospels Luke versus John's? Uh, Luke's Gospel versus John's. Uh, so Tatian was, was in fact very embarrassed about this and he went, oh man, we need to fix this up. And so he created this text called the Theotesidon, which is kind of a harmonisation of all four Gospels, and went, ah, the church is going to love this. Okay, because there's now no, no, no discrepancies between the different accounts. And the church went, you're a heretic. This is wrong. In fact, the, 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 the difference in the accounts is very important. Not only do we get a different perspective, but according to somebody like Oregon, it is in fact put there by God himself in order to make a search for the deeper meaning. So God is in fact trying to, through the um, things which according to Oregon couldn't have historically happened. So for example, Oregon uses the example of God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening in Genesis. He says, okay, God walked in the garden in the cool of... uh, of, Alright, hang on a second. Does God have legs? And why was he walking in the cool of the evening? Was he worried he was going to get sunburnt? Or, you know, what's, what's the deal here? Or he says, no, no, that's not the point. The point is the spiritual significance of that particular text. That God was searching for Adam and Eve who had sinned. Right? And then that's the significant thing uh, 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 about the text. So in other words, Oregon had a, um, uh, you know, and in fact all the church fathers had a much more sophisticated way of reading scripture which said, okay, we accept the history of it, but we recognise the fact that the history isn't the end of the story when it comes to Scripture. That we have to dig deeper in order to find the good stuff. And, uh, you know, one, one of the great uh, examples of that is actually St. Cyril of Alexandria, who uh, 75% of his work was in fact scriptural exegesis. And sadly, the only thing you remember him for is the fact that he had with his stories. But in fact, his main contribution to the tradition of the church was that he was a scriptural exegete. And he says something fascinating. He said, look, there are all these different interpretations that have come before me, and they're all really good. But I just want to add another lens through which we can read the scriptures, which is a Christocentric lens. At every point in scripture, we see Christ. And so, you know, and so God said, let there be light. Oh, there's the word. Christ is present. In the act of creation, um, you know, and therefore a man should leave his uh, father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ah, that's about Christ in the church, etc., etc. So, this more sophisticated way of reading the scriptures is in fact the tradition of the Orthodox Church. 
Now, uh, one of the things I think that's very important now, it sounds like the, 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 the way I'm heading is I'm heading for a, uh, a, a, um, uh, a fairly one-sided answer to this particular uh, uh, question. But I think the thing that's really important is to recognise the fact that uh, if we were to take a time machine back and ask the vast majority of the great teachers in the church, uh, do you think the account of Genesis happened historically? I think almost every single one of them would have said yes. So I think it is in fact an ahistorical approach to try to suggest that the traditional interpretation of the Holy Scriptures uh, has the capacity to um, uh, accept the idea of, of uh, evolutionary theory. Or, or that the Church Fathers supported evolution. I think <clears throat> you are really stretching the reading of the Church Fathers to think that the Church Fathers would have uh, accepted the idea of, of evolutionary theory. Um, uh, so... For people who who bang on about about oh you know you need to take a sophisticated reading of the church fathers and all that sort of stuff, therefore um, you have to accept the theory of religion. I think that that is a incorrect statement to make based on the patristic tradition. And what do I think the, uh, it's quite possible that the theory of evolution or any understanding about evolution back then at the time of the church fathers mm. was not very well understood. Well, there wasn't a theory of evolution at the time of the Church Fathers. Uh, yes, you're correct. Yeah. Um, but even when Darwin came out with his mm. theory, it wasn't very well understood scientifically at the time, yeah. as opposed to today. Now you've got scientists and um, you know geneticists and biologists and whatever else, mm. um, and physicists, and all of them talk about evolution as though it was absolutely 100%. But what about guitarists, Fred? Yeah, no, 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 no. I think think, uh, you're making a very good point. And we can, in fact, link this to the the issue of the church fathers. If we go searching through the great thinkers of the church and try to dig out from them proof of the theory of evolution and what they had to say, we won't find it. But what we can do, in fact, is say, what was their methodology? How did they engage with the science of their time? Uh, And what you'll find in that is, in fact, a spectrum of opinion. Even within the one church father, you'll have somebody like like St. Basil saying, wherever anything is good and true, we take it as Christians. You know, the the paradigm of the the bee collecting nectar from the different um, uh, flowers. You know, and he also says some of these... So there's no such thing as a scientist there, though, philosophers. Um, some of these philosophers reckon that there are these things that exist called atoms. What a bunch of idiots. Yeah, so atomic theory goes all the way back to the 4th century BC in, in, uh, with uh, Democritus, I think, was the first person in, in Greece to, to suggest the theory. So you have somebody like, like, like St. Basil making a... Uh, a very strong statement that wherever something is true, that we as Christians should embrace it, and at the same time saying something which seems, in fact, from a modern perspective, very unscientific. And then we have a really interesting dilemma then. Do we... Uh, who here thinks that St. Basil made a mistake about atoms? 
All right, we've got two people. The rest of you uh, don't believe in the existence of atoms, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, we now we now know that atoms exist. What we need to do is interpret, in fact, what Saint Basil was was rejecting and what he was opposed to. He was opposed to an atomic theory, which stated that the atoms, are in fact, fill the place of God. In other words, that atoms are the um, force that is responsible for creation through their um, uh, uh, through the way that they choose to um, configure themselves. And so that's St. Basil's reason for rejecting the idea of atomic theory. Now, the thing that's important about that is we're not listening to his conclusions, we're listening to his methodology. So in other words, we're going, okay, if he was alive today, would he have said the same thing about atoms? No. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have. Of course, we, we, we can never be certain about uh, you know, projecting back uh, you know, 1,600 years ago, but we're pretty sure that he would have, uh, wouldn't have had a problem with, with atomic theory the way that atomic theory is understood. Um, so, so the question then becomes of, of how, do we, uh, how would the Church Fathers have interpreted uh, scientific data and how they would have thought about uh, when it comes to the realm of theology. And the way that this is approached in different strands of Christianity and in the secular world is a few different uh, ways. Okay? And I'll, I'll, broadly, it's about the relationship between the physical and the metaphysical, about the things that are concrete and the things that are abstract. So the, the, the approach, uh, there's a whole bunch of different approaches. The purely secularist uh, uh, scientific perspective is there is no metaphysical. The only thing that has true existence is only the physical. In other words, if you can't test it in a lab, it doesn't exist and we should forget about it. All right? Now, uh, <coughs> I, I find that problematic on, even from, a, from, a, from an atheist perspective. I find that problematic. Because, okay, forget about the idea of, of God. Do you love your kids? If the answer is yes, then you adhere to a system which is ultimately a metaphysical system of understanding the world. That you have this thing in you called love that can never be tested, that can't be put into a test tube, that can't be analysed, that, you know, as much as we like to write it, we can never pin it down. But if even from an atheist perspective you realise that love is one of the most significant things in your life, you're ultimately saying that, that it's not just the things that are concrete here before me uh, which are important, but also things which, which can't be tested, which don't exist, are also important as well. But now, it's not only love, it's other things as well. It's feelings, it's uh, thought process, it's uh, uh, emotions, it's all those things like you're saying. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, th thanks for that, Freddie. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, another approach, and this is uh, the approach that was taken uh, uh, amongst kind of more progressive areas within Western Christianity in earlier times, which is to say, um, uh, uh, you know, start off with, with God is behind everything. And then you start doing physics experiments, and you realise Newton starts to realise the way that, that things work, and, and uh, you know drives his laws of motion. And he goes, okay, so maybe God is not involved in this bit here because we can reproduce and we're in control of these things. 
So therefore, God is still important, but he is there to explain the things that we can't explain. And as science explains more and more and more, then God is left in that space where he is just responsible for the bits that we can't explain. That's uh, the theory of God of the gaps. In other words, wherever there's a gap there in our understanding of the way the world works, we put God in there. Another approach is to say, uh, uh, to take the other extreme, which is to say, the only thing that is of significance is, uh, is God, and therefore everything else is evil and should be disregarded. You know, every person in front, you know, your, the physical reality of the people in front of me is all evil because we're all meant to be spirits. thing about um, only the spiritual things uh, being significant is also another extreme. It wipes out the reality of, of everything else. You know, The laws of motion don't exist. Newton was wrong. It's just that God has been controlling the universe in a way which makes us think that we've derived the Newton's laws of motion. Okay, So that's another extreme. What I think the healthiest approach is when it comes to the way that we understand reality is that God is everywhere and in everything. You know, what, what do we say about the spirit of truth? The spirit of truth, the comforter who is everywhere and fills. And what do we say in the Greek? Yeah. Now, what, what is, what is the, the uh, gender of that panto? Utah. So it's in fact not saying that he fills all anthropos. Okay? It simply says in that prayer that the Holy Spirit who fills everything. That is actually the literal translation of the, of the not fills everybody like we have in the NBA. It's, it's the Holy Spirit who fills everything. So in other words, there's, uh, there are different lenses that we can put on in the way that we interpret reality. You know, uh, so we can read reality as a physical thing uh, or we can put on our spiritual lenses and read the same reality as a spiritual thing so in other words the two things aren't two different realms and the spiritual is where God has control and the physical is where uh, nature has control that God in fact gives meaning to that physical reality uh, let me give you an example if I was to pick up a a, 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 a piece of paper and to ask you what is it okay you might you might pick it up look at it really really close go, oh, I can see some some organic fiber in there probably um, uh, tree pulp and I can see a binding agent and and there's some uh, color in there and I can see that these areas have been bleached are you right about the paper yes you're right what if I pull it back from you and say what do you see and you go ah it's a pole So this is kind of a metaphor for the way that we, hopefully as Orthodox Christians, approach the, uh, approach the world. 
Yes, you can look really close at, at, at things and, and uh, analyse what they're made from, but you're missing the significance of what that thing is if you don't step back and view it through the spiritual lens and see God working through all things and God present in all things and God sanctifying all things. So in other words, the proper place for science is to ask the question, what? Okay, or, or how, that's, but you know, but can never ever, and this is a very big overstep on the scientific endeavour, uh, to overstep that and to, and to try to answer the question, why? Science can never ever answer the question of why. The only answer to why is God. So, back to the laws of motion. Why do uh, ball bearings end, you know, op- operate in this, uh, from this perspective? Or how do they operate? Well, they operate like this because of the um, uh, laws of motion, the Newtonian laws of motion. But why? Because God is the author of the laws of Newtonian motion. Uh, assuming we can speak in absolutes. Of course, now we know that Newtonian motion is actually just a classical approximation of a quantum mechanical thing to do. But anyway, but let's assume that, that that's, that that's um, the case. So, um, in other words, it is... Personally, I think that the healthiest approach from a Christian perspective is to realise that, that, uh, that we can have different lenses through which we interpret the world, but the most significant lens that we interpret the world through is the, the spiritual lens one of our relationship with God. And through that lens, we see God in everything and through everything, and he's the source of everything, and he's the destination of everything. Because that is the whole purpose of all of this endeavour. But by the same token, we can also talk about uh, hows and whats. That that's, that's also a legitimate thing to... But once we start separating those two things and say, I'm only interested in the what and the how, not the why, then we despiritualize reality. And that's dangerous. Uh, and vice versa, science, when it tries to impose itself and to answer the why questions, is very seriously overstepping its mark for, 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 for where, it can, uh, uh, where it can go. Now, in all of this, I've hardly said anything about creation and evolution. <laughs> And, and, and I, I, I apologise for that. My personal perspective is if you believe in a literal creation that happened 6,000 years ago, you are an awesome human being and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you believe in evolutionary theory, with the proviso that the why, that God sits behind all of these things, then you are an awesome human being and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is my own uh, personal uh, uh, take on that. If you had to corner me and say, what do you personally believe, Michael? Then I would uh, be a little bit more of an evolutionist. I met a Catholic priest once many years ago who said to me, um, there's a difference between theistic and atheistic evolution. Mm. Theistic evolution is the belief that the evolutionary process happens God having a hand in the process. Mm. So there shouldn't be anything wrong with being a Christian and believing in God. And at the same time, believing in the process that God had a hand in creating that process. And atheistic evolution 
absolutely. Thanks for that, Freddie. Um, I think one of the things that that's, that um, we need to, if we just step back and, and look at, uh, so the first three chapters of Genesis, okay, and, and look at it from a, forget about trying to prove evolution or, or anything like that, just looking at the text of Scripture itself, what we'll find, in fact, is that it is a very complex and sophisticated text. It is an incredible text. You know, firstly, if we just look at the whole structure, what we find, in fact, is two different accounts of creation. We find creation as described in Genesis chapter 1 and then through to chapter 2, verse 3, I think. And then from 2, uh, uh, 4 until the end of, of uh, chapter 3, we have a different account of, the, of creation. What's the first account of creation that we read? The six days of creation, the seventh day of God's rest. Now, if we look at it, in fact, it has a poetic structure, which is really quite beautiful. So what happens in the first day? What does God create? Yes, and separates? Uh, yeah, light from darkness. Yeah. And then, what happens in the fourth day? And the moon. The sun to rule over the... Uh, the, the, the day and the moon to rule over the night. And then one of the beautiful things is when, when you read Oregon's uh, perspective on that, he says, the sun is like Christ and the moon is like the church which draws its glory from Christ. And that it is it, it has authority over the night because we live in the night time. But the ultimate thing that we hope for is the day, is the true son of righteousness who gives meaning to the, to the church. Yeah, so that's an example of, of, of the way to read that. Uh, what happens in the second day? So God, God separates the, um, uh, the water and, and the dry land. Yep. Uh, uh, and then what do we have on the fifth day? We have the creation of the fish and the creation of the plants. Okay? So in other words, God fills these two realms that he's created. What do we have on the third day? I forgot. But it makes sense when you look at the sixth day. And so I see about the light on the third day, another light, and I never understood what the first light was and the second light was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the first, the first and fourth days is where you have references to light. And the first is the creation of light and darkness, and then the fourth day is the creation of of the sun and the moon. Yeah. So, well, this is this idea of, uh, of God's structure and his creation. So he creates the concept of light and then puts the light into, uh, uh, into form in the, um, uh, in the sun. But the thing is, oh, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, second day. Now, one of the things that I, w- I want to point out to you in terms of the, 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 um, uh, the days, we find something very interesting in, in the days of creation, okay? Which is that every day ends with, so the evening and the morning were the third day. 
Yeah? And God looks at what he's made and he says it's good. And then he gets to the end of the sixth day after he's made the human being. And what does he, and what does he say about it? He says it's very good. Yeah? And, then the, and then you have the, uh, the, the, the evening and the morning, sixth day. And then on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. And then there's one thing missing from the seventh day. What's missing from the seventh day? Pull out the phones. Have a look. Um, Would you bless the seventh day? Uh, yes, yes. But, but there's something missing that is present in all of the other days. Evening, evening. Yeah. So it's evening and morning, the seventh day. So one way of reading the scriptures, in fact, is that from the beginning of, you know, so from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation is the account of the seventh day. Yeah. And so the early church understood this and interpreted, in fact, uh, so much of, 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 of the, the, the idea of days from this perspective. That when it says that our Lord Jesus Christ rose, what day did he rise? First day of a new week. Right? And, and a lot of the patristic commentaries, that is the eighth day. The eternal day of God's kingdom is the eighth day. And so one of the things that's really incredible is when you go to uh, uh, most of the ancient churches, you'll find something very odd about the shape of the baptistries. The baptistries are octagonal. Because the person... Uh, is baptised into the water and then exits into the kingdom of God. Um, it is just absolutely... But this shows you kind of some, you know, some of the sophistication about, about, um, uh, about the way that we read Genesis. What do we see, what do we see in, in the second account of Genesis? So, what's, so, so God... Uh, so so what, what's, what's created uh, very early on in the account? Uh, chapter 2. That is some. That is one way that it has been interpreted as a kind of a filling in of the details of chapter 1. But if you look really carefully at it, 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 it does things in a slightly different order. So one of the first uh, part of God's creation is, is what? Adam is, is, is... And God, what does God do? Does God create Adam out of nothing? What does he create Adam out of? Yeah. yeah something he's already created before. Hmm? Yeah. That's what the word Adam means. I thought that means earth. Yes, the earth man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, uh, you know, and then, and, then he, and then he plants the garden, puts Adam in it, and then says, oh, poor Adam's getting lonely. What am I going to do? Oh, no, I'll create the animals for him. So God brings all the animals to, to, to Adam and says, right, name them. And to name them is, in fact, a very deep thing in a Semitic uh, context. To name something is to understand what its true inner thing is. So the fact that Adam is called to name the creatures is indicative of, of what we read in, in chapter 1, that he's meant to have dominion over creation. Okay? Does that work? No, it doesn't work, all right? Uh, what am I going to do? All right, I'll uh, create Eve. So then 
we know the account of the creation of Eve. Okay, and then so Eve is created. In other words, what we have in the second account is a, is a different ordering of things. The creation of Adam, the planting of the garden, the creation of the animals, and the creation of, of woman. The best part of God's creation, of course. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so anyway, so the, 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 the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that is that the way that we read Genesis, in fact, is, is very sophisticated and very complex, or at least it should be. It is a very sophisticated and very complex text. And we draw true significance uh, of that text when we read it uh, Christologically, uh, spiritually, allegorically, not rejecting the historicity of it. And by the way, personally, uh, I think that there, about 6,000 years ago that there was a bloke called Adam who was married to somebody called Eve, and that about 6,000 years ago that they walked the face of the earth and they, were, uh, uh, they had a relationship with God and they broke that relationship. And as a result of... Uh, and, and, uh, and what we have then is an unfolding of the account of God's, um, uh, God's people. Um, yes? See, it all depends on, on what lens we want to take. So uh, there's nothing wrong with taking the approach of, of saying that the Earth is 6,000 years old. End story. All right? So if, if, that's, uh, if that makes... Um, uh, if that is the most spiritually benefit, uh, beneficial thing for the individual, then I think that that's uh, a valid approach. Personally, because I take more of an evolutionist approach to, to, to this whole issue, um, I think that there are hints... In Genesis, in fact, that uh, human society was in fact a lot more complex than, than, than just Adam and Eve. We know that you know um, uh, when uh, uh, Cain killed Abel, that they came, left, and went and, and built a city. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, that, yeah, that's, yeah, 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 that's something else. But you know, he went and uh, went went somewhere else and. and um, uh, built built the city. It seems like a lot of trouble to go to when you're by yourself with your missus. Um, the uh, uh, other thing as well, we find some really odd statements in Genesis, like, uh, and then the sons of, of God married the daughters of men, which is a really fascinating text. Mm. And the sons of men were the, the pagans. So there must have been nations that were 
traditions at that time. Mm, And, and, and I, think, I, think, I think that's, that's historical. What I mean by that is, is the way that I wrestle with it personally is that I would say that, um, uh, that Adam is the first human being. Adam and Eve are the first human beings because they are the first to have a relationship with God. And they are then become the, the son and daughter of God. Uh, and then there, and then there, the, uh, yeah. And then there, there are other people who are the sons of men. side of the fence you're on, you then throw arrows at, at the other side. And I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's what, what God intended at all. Now, could, could I be wrong about this? Man, I'm wrong about so many things. I, yes, sorry. Michael, uh, can I just say that there's an organisation called Answers in Genesis. Yes, yeah. And yeah. they answer those questions. Yeah. And, you know, Adam and Eve had more than two children. Mm, mm. Probably a dozen or more. Mm. Oh, they have there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they even married, but in those days, the gene pool was absolutely perfect. Yeah. There was no mm. way that things went wrong. But as time went on and man sinned, mm. uh, the gene pool got disturbed, people got diseases and all that sort of mm. thing. You know. And, and uh, thank you very much for that, actually. So, for those of you who are interested, that resource is really, really good. Yeah. The answers in Genesis for, they, for giving they a. Yeah. All those questions that, yeah. Uh, to their magazine and uh, very good. Mm. And look, you know, I mean, believe in creation. Do we believe in an omniscient, omnipotent God, an all-knowing, all-powerful God? Mm. Um, he can do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. limit him mm. to say, oh, you couldn't do that in that time frame mm. and that sort of thing? Yeah. Why limit God? Yeah. We can't do that. Uh, I think... I, I, the, the only caveat for me is that it's not so much about protecting or, or um, a uh, defence of God, but rather it's about uh, protecting a particular interpretation or a particular reading of Genesis. And the, the, the two things for me are slightly different uh, topics. Um, like I said, I've, I've got no problem at all with a, with a, with a completely literal uh, reading of Genesis. I think that that's completely fine. I've um, you know, I grew up in the, ch in, in the church where to think anything other than that you would have been um, got yourself into a lot of trouble um, and I certainly got myself into a lot of trouble as a, uh, as a very rambunctious uh, young troublemaker um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, it's one of those things where, where for me personally it's taken me a long time to come to peace with with the, the uh, two, um, uh, with, with, those, with those perspectives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for, for those of you who are, uh, uh, do 
subscribe to a, uh, an, an evolutionary approach to things. Uh, rest assured that there are plenty of, of people who also subscribe to an evolutionary perspective who are um, good people as well. I'm not one of them, by the way. Just uh, out of interest, uh, so what's an answer? Great. You know those people who answered in Genesis? Yes. They used to come and give talks and demonstrations to yeah. us at St. Mark's Church in Alfred yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. When I first started going to church, I was 23 years old. Yeah. They used to come and give yeah. talks there. They still and there was, yeah. yeah. And yeah. there was a guy called Ken Ham. Yeah. Yeah. Ken Ham. Yeah. He, he was, was American, yeah. one of the leaders of that organization. They've got a website and they had videos and all these videos. And the person who introduced that. Um, that was going to be with our church was Uncle Kenny Hammer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Evolution does more to destroy people's faith than anything else. It casts doubts into people's minds. That, that's right, that's yeah. only if faith is defined as literal interpretation of scripture. His, uh, what was his de denominational uh, Methodist. Methodist, yeah. Mm -hmm. but I grew up believing in, in uh, when I went to university, because there was a lot of challenges there too. Um, and, you know, a lot of ministers became theistic evolutionists. They, they believed in God, they believed that God created, uh, God created an evolutionary way. Yeah. And that to me doesn't make sense. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. And this is why I didn't want to do this topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, look, I, I'm very interested in all of your opinions uh, on, on this particular issue as well.
To me, I mean, look, there's um, there's something very unique about what it means to be a human being, uh, which is that the human being is the summary of all of God's creation. That we are the only part of God's creation which uh, bridges the uh, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. The rest of God's creation is either physical or or spiritual, and it's only the human person who is ultimately the summary of all of God's creation in one in one package as both spiritual and, and physical. So in other words, contained within the human person. And there's this, all this um, uh, particularly patristic commentary on the idea of the human person as a microcosm as containing within themselves the whole of God's cosmos. And so from, from that perspective, uh, you know, the, the, you know, are there apes there? Well, yeah. Yeah, it's not a theologically problematic uh, perspective. Uh, the thing I find curious is, is we're very offended at the, uh, offended at the idea of, of, uh, of apes, but not of teen. Uh, uh, mud, dust. Yeah, well, that's that's not offensive, but uh, but apes are. Sorry. Oh, as, as in, you know, apes are, are, are such a, a low level of of life or, or, or of, of, of God's creation that it's, it's offensive to um, connect ourselves to that. But then if we say, well, you know, the, the Genesis account is, is of dust, of teen in Arabic, that that's, that's, not, uh, that's not offensive. Did I? No, probably just. Well, what what the uh, scriptures tell us uh, in 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 the first instance is that. Um, uh, God made creation. It doesn't actually tell us how. Um, we assume, uh, or, or you know, that the, the a literalist reading of it would be that God said something and then it just came into existence in, a, in an instant in terms of time. Um, uh, uh, the second account of creation is that God takes something He's already made and fashions that into the human person, and then adds something to that. To make it more than simply what it was made, uh, what the human person was made out of. That that God takes the stuff that He made the human person out of, as He breathes His uh, breath of life into it, His spirit, and the and that thing that He's fashioned in becomes at that point truly human being. 
So I'll, I'll, my thinking of it, if I want to harmonise that with a with an evolutionary perspective, is that uh, it's only once God's spirit is breathed into that creature through the, the creature's reciprocal relationship and acknowledging God that then that creature then is truly the first thing human being. And, and, and But that process is then this, of where that human came from is then this evolutionary process. Yeah. But that, that, that's just, that's like I said, yeah. Fits in very nicely with what Sanofianosis had to say about the uh, about what uh, what, the, what the nature of, of, of um, uh, humanity turning away from God was, which, which is that humans are supposed to looking up towards God, look down towards what they are made of, and uh, he he says that's why Christ had to take our flesh because we were looking at, at only fleshly things, and so God had to come in a form. To which we were looking towards, and that's the thing that's really interesting. You know, the the, the um, one of the moral aspects of that is that we are called to be more than simply what we're made of. Because if we simply define ourselves by our biology, uh, then that's a very um, uh, limiting perspective versus God's perspective, which is that we are our, our biology plus his the life that he's given us. And that we are called, that we are fashioned constantly by God. But anyway, look, I did. I had no intention at all of being an apologist for, for a, um, a uh, an evolutionary perspective. The only thing I, I would uh, say is the most important thing at the end of the day is is love. And to recognise the fact that um, uh, there are plenty of people who seek God who have different perspectives to us, and uh, ultimately it's God's decision. If I uh, once I die before God sends me to hell, because I'm sure I'm going to end up in hell, if he says to me, "By the way, you were completely wrong. It was actually uh, six thousand years," uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, it did ha- it did happen in six times twenty four hour days, um, then. That's. I wouldn't be shocked at all. And then I go to hell. But I go. For, I, I think I'd go to hell for other things. Because <laughs> I've got plenty of things to go to hell for. Yes. So Michael, I just like give us a Well, yeah. well, that's pretty-
precisely what I want to do. I want to go right down there. Because, no, because, because, yeah, yeah. Because, because that's the... Everything we do, we have to do with love. And so, and so yeah, I, I don't necessarily see that there is a... Um, that, that, that's beneficial. I was just going to say, there's, there's a multitude of resources online, like people want to look up, um, you know, answers in Genesis, people want to look up, you know, theistic evolution, there's so much online and so many different perspectives, so each person can go away and wrestle with it themselves, as I'm sure you did over a period of time. Um, and I think Mike was 100% right at the end of the day, our whole existence is knowing and loving God and learning to love one another. So well, regardless of what opinion we have, if we lose focus on that, we've lost focus on it. That's the model. Thank you again, Aaron. <laughs> I don't know, what, 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 do, what do you guys think? If you had to raise your hands if you're brave to, uh, to um, uh, say, you know, do, do, do any, well, uh, who have you, uh, Ascribe very passionately to um, the literal reading of Genesis in terms of six days and all that sort of stuff. I mean, no one's in trouble. I presumably, yeah, yeah. Do you? I agree with your opinion. I believe you can't you can't enjoy the privileges of the modern life and then cast aside science because everything that science has built is responsible for the privileges and the comforts and things that we have today, models, sewage, electricity, all that stuff that we take for granted. As will become because of the product, byproducts of science. Mm. So if you're gonna, you know, so yeah, I agree with you, but mm. you don't want to stir the pot too much because. Oh, look, I, th I think, but also, no, I, think you're very, I think you're very, very active when you just talk about it. I'm very, very stupid. stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, uh, Every point we need to say yes, but, and so the but to that would be that the danger then becomes if we deify science and say so that the answer to all of our problems can be found in science. There is only one answer to our problems in this Christ. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not saying that that's what no, you're saying. I agree, I agree with you. Like, we, we do have a problem. And a, a statistic is that's why a lot of people these days are suffering from a lot of anxiety and mental health issues mm -hmm. because as the material comfort has skyrocketed, there's also been a lot of decline in yeah. you know people being connected and feeling wholesome in the spiritual life and decline in church and yeah. everything. So as one thing goes up, the other thing goes down. So it's always a trade off. And I think the thing that's also really important to state as well is that, that, that there is a huge litany of mistakes that science has made. Um, uh, you know, from from uh, you know even as. You know, last century, beginning of last century, people believed that there was a substance called ether that light propagated through because they couldn't understand how light could propagate in a vacuum. And so the most brilliant minds, you know, believed in, in, in ether. Um, and, you know, the Michelson Morley interferometry experiment at the end of the, the 19th century was meant to measure the speed of the earth through the, uh, through the ether. And then when that didn't work out, they all of a sudden went, oh man, oops, how embarrassing. 
walking around a scientist going, oh, you know, maybe evolutionary theory could be one of those things that I don't, 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 don't know. And I think the other thing as well that's, that's important is um, uh, I've completely forgotten what was I called? Ether. Yes, ether. I don't know. The, the, the thing is, is escaping now. Um, any any atheistic evolutionists? I think to also be careful of when it comes to science is also ideologically driven science because that's bad science. Okay, so a good example of that, I think, uh, of really bad ideologically uh, driven science is the answer to the question why is it that the universe is tuned for the, for the creation of life? Okay, why does life exist? Why are we here to even talk about this if the universe is completely random? How can that possibly be? So a theory that, that springs out of that, that many uh, physicists describe to now is the idea of, of the multiverse, and it's not something from Marvel, from the Marvel Universe. It's having your cake and eating it too. It's saying, well, it's just this universe that happens to accidentally be right for life. But there must be an infinite number of other universes uh, where there is no life, and we just happen to live in the lucky one. Right? That is... That is, a, that is a, a, an example of an ideologically driven science, which, which says as opposed to this demonstrates divine providence, uh, says, no, no, this is just another accident. All right? So what, are the, what, what proof do you have that there are other universes? Here, nothing. There's no proof. Uh, another example of, of ideologically driven science, I would say, is... Um, uh, the approach, the modern approach to the issue of human sexuality is also another area of, of uh, kind of an ideologically driven science where the politics pre, pre, um, precedes the, uh, the scientific consensus. So that's, a, that's another really good example of bad science. So there's, yeah, there's plenty of bad science all over the place. And could evolutionary theory be one of those? Sure. Can I just make one comment? We talk about evolution, <coughs> and decades ago it was always the theory of evolution. Mm. And it's still a theory. Mm. It's not been proven. To prove evolution, you need to prove a changing link, link, link mm. uh, between one species or one thing to another. Mm. So, we need to talk about theory of evolution, not scientific, not scientific evolution. Yeah, I, I could argue that, well, we have seen that, for example, uh, you know, on the micro level when it comes to the, the change in the genetic makeup of viruses or in the um, uh, disappearance of white butterflies after the um, Industrial Revolution when all buildings were, were covered in soot and therefore all the white uh, 
particular species of butterfly that was yeah. But yeah, the, the point the the, the, the the point I'm trying to make is it's well, natural selection is one thing, you know, mm. but that's not evolution. And, and no. actually, entropy entropy is what's going on in the world. Things are degrading evolving. Uh, yeah, well, the law of entropy is a little bit more complex than that because uh, the, the, that's true at a complete system perspective, but there can be pockets in that system which have an uh, increasing order. But as long as the whole system is one of increasing disorder, then, then that works, yeah. Yep, and I'm getting the wind up. And I'm still alive, no one's killed me yet. Yeah, yeah, look, look, I think it's, it's really, it's quite tricky. Uh, and I think part of, the, part of the problem is the way that we, in fact, define the issue of species. I mean, that actually goes back to a... Uh this talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.